Good morning and welcome to the broadcast of Faith Mountain Ministries. We're excited to be here in the Midwest. Right now we're in Minneapolis and tonight we start meetings in Cambridge at Lakeside Church and it starts a series of meetings throughout Minnesota and into South Dakota. And so if you're in the Midwest over the next two weeks, take a look at our schedule at billvanderbush.com and you'll see where we're going to be. And if you're within a decent drive of us, why don't you come on out and be a part of these meetings. We're going to spend a lot of time this summer talking about this this revelation of our union with God. You're one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, the covenant of Christ, and what the ministry of reconciliation from the cross has done for us. That it's restored our relationship with the Father. It's brought us to a place of unhindered, unbroken communion and access with God. It's established our identity as priests and kings in Christ. And has granted to us the promise of the Holy Spirit. You know, the grace of the Holy Spirit's presence in our life is really the thing that ultimately validates the fact that we are a temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. Because of what Christ has done on the cross, our identity is forever linked in with the identity of Christ, intertwined with his divine nature. And so to see ourselves as God sees us, that's an eternal challenge for us because we're so perspective-driven when it comes to our humanity and our physical being. We think this is all there is, but you're so much more than just a human body, so much more than just a human being. You're an eternal spirit resting inside of a physical body. That may be really difficult to comprehend or imagine, but what it tells us is that nothing that happens to us in this physical body should have the power to disturb or upset our spirit to the point where we can't overcome with righteousness, peace, and joy. Every pain, hurt, loss, frustration, moment of suffering we've ever felt, moment of disappointment that we've ever experienced, doesn't mean that we won't go through pain, doesn't mean that we won't go through difficulties in our lives, but we draw life from the Spirit, not regarding as the highest revelation of ourself what happens in this flesh. Okay, That's how actually we live holy unto God. So we're not trying to become holy within our flesh. We are made holy by the blood of Christ, by Jesus himself, on the cross, in our spirit. And now our life in this flesh ought to be lived as a reflection of the revelation of the restoration of reconciliation with God that's happened in the spirit. Therefore, righteousness, peace, and joy becomes the hallmark of our existence. We don't even have to try. That's the thing. You just be who you truly are. All right, how's that for an introduction today? (laughs) I know it seems like a tall order, but it's not a striving. It's a surrender. That's it. Just surrender to be who you are. All the sin you've ever committed in your life was done through striving. Uh, Or you perhaps surrendered to a false identity that God never gave you. And in that false identity, you did something, you worked something, you you took an action, and that action is labeled as sin, and you find yourself in a place of brokenness and all. What, what happened there? You had to work yourself into sin. That's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death. You have to work for wages. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
You don't work for a gift. If you worked for a gift, it wouldn't be a gift. Just because the grace of God, the eternal life that comes through the salvation of Jesus is called a gift ought to tell us something about how it's apprehended. It's apprehended simply by saying yes to it. And today, maybe this is a day where you say, Jesus, I receive that gift. You know, maybe you felt like a prodigal and you want to come home. Well, then you're probably going to identify with the story that I'm going to talk about today. Now, I can't tell you how many times over the years I've preached on the prodigal son, but this is going to be a little different. Now, let's start today by reading the story uh, as it's written. And I'm going to go ahead and read out of Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And by the way, this parable of the lost son comes after two other parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin. Jesus tells three parables in a row. The lost sheep gets lost because he just follows one tuft of grass to another. It's not like he's trying to leave. He just sort of goes. The lost coin just rolls away on its own. The lost son made a choice, made a decision. And I think the whole idea here behind these three parables is Jesus is saying, you can get lost a number of different ways, through ignorance, through carelessness, through no fault of your own, or through your intentions. But the point of the Father's heart is that you come home. doesn't care how you got lost. The point is that you come back to the favor of the Father's face, the love of the Father's house. But when the prodigals come home, is love what they find? Well, that's what we're going to talk about and explore today. All right, Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. And he said, Jesus said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me or the inheritance that's coming to me. And he divided the inheritance between them. Not many days later, younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his wealth in riotous, reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. No one would give anything to him. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? and I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no more worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they begin to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed a fattened calf because he've received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, 
Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property and your wealth and his inheritance with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. There's probably no more common parable that's repeated from Jesus than this story of the prodigal son. And probably because all of us can relate to all of these characters at some point. I mean, let's just start with the most basics, the servants in the father's house. I think all of us who've perhaps been in church for any length of time have felt perhaps like the best we can think of to be is a servant in the father's house. And many of us are probably just glad to be that. And then the younger son, the one who wants to go his own way and do his own thing. How many of us can relate to that guy? Somebody who for a while tries not to be a son or walks away from the father's house to strike out and find their own identity apart from the father. Many of us can relate to that one as well. And maybe you can relate to the father's heart. Maybe you have a son or a daughter or a child who's wandering, gone their own way, and you feel the breaking of the father's heart. You know that if, if they were to come home, if they were to, to, to be safe and sound, that you wouldn't care what their repentant speech was, what the reasons were that they struck out. You just would hug them, restore them, and, and love them. doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. Yeah, you get the heart of the father. But then, there are some can relate to the elder brother, the one who never leaves, the one who does it all right, the one who, of all of the folks in the father's house, should be worthy of the greatest honor, and yet finds it incredibly easy to cast judgment on those who don't do it all right, who aren't faithful to the Father's house, who get it wrong, who mess up, who go their own way, who squander the grace of God. It's easy to judge them, isn't it? Matter of fact, I think perhaps all of us have been the elder brother at some point towards somebody. And what the reality is, is that all of us have been all of these things. And I think God knows this. Jesus is going to use this story as a point of connection, especially to Israel, but really even to those of us here today, Jew and Gentile alike, we can all relate to the characters and the drama in this story. So let's break it down and see what we find. The first thing about this story that's mentioned is that the father had two sons, and while the younger son's journey to everywhere takes center stage early on, the older son's journey to nowhere is just as important. And perhaps this one is the more relevant to what I'm going to talk about today. The younger son demands his inheritance while the father is still alive with the darkest of intentions behind it. Now, to demand an inheritance while somebody is still alive is to communicate that your preference would be that they were already dead. So there's no desire for any relationship with the father here, really in both sons. But especially in this younger son, the seeds of selfishness have choked the life out of the heart of love for the father. The first hint we have 
of the heart of the Father is that he actually grants the Son his request. As a matter of fact, he gives both of the sons their inheritance. If he's going to do it for one, he's going to do it for the other two. And he does it against all good judgment. The Father seems to value the gift of freedom that neither one of the sons, but especially the younger one, hasn't yet learned to manage. Now, the fact that the father actually gives the inheritance to this younger son, probably knowing what the younger son is about to do, think about that with me for a second. Can you feel maybe a sense of judgment in your heart against the father like he shouldn't have done that? I think Jesus actually meant to tell the story in this way to expose within us the tendency to question the Father's ways when it comes to freedom and to grace. Now, we could even say that it wasn't loving or it wasn't right to grant the younger son's request. And you know, we would have a point. It doesn't seem like responsible parenting to facilitate the squandering of an inheritance in sinful activity. But the Father gives the son the wealth and lets him go. And when the younger son leaves in the most offensive way imaginable, he's likely, in this moment, only thinking of his own pleasure, his own personal drive for adventure, and his personal identity journey to see what's the most hedonistic happiness he can find out there. The truth is, yeah, we can't see his motivation, but we can see it through the filter of our own. Anytime we've ever felt the quote-unquote right to go our own way, saying things like, it's my life, I can do with it what I want, we can relate to that younger son. See, you didn't build your life. It was given to you. None of us are here through any fault of our own. We are all alive by the will of another. Eventually, after a time of riotous living, as the Bible says, reckless and riotous, the younger son finds himself broke and alone whatever relationships he developed because of his wealth have left along with the money. He's tasted everything the world has to offer. And now he finds himself in a hog pen eating what they eat. Imagine fighting over hog food with other hogs. Maybe you've been there in a spiritual sense. At this point, the son has literally lost everything. He's been stripped down to nothing, including he's lost all sense of sonship. And as a last resort, he determines that the only way that he can go on is to go home. Have you ever been there? Feeling like the only way you can go on is to go home. And then thinking perhaps that God is disappointed with you, so disappointed that he doesn't even want to see you. And so maybe you felt it's just easier to stay away. And I'm telling you today, the heart of the Father is for you, not against you. Well, the younger son, he indeed does come home. And when he comes home, he has a warped sense of identity, seeing himself as nothing better than a servant in his own father's house. And this is what sin does. It doesn't change the Father's mind about you. It changes your mind about yourself. It warps your perceptive of, perspective of the goodness of God and your perspective of your own identity. So in this moment, the repentance of 
this young man's heart is born from hitting rock bottom with no place to go. Filled with a worthless sense of rejection, he practices a, a basic repentance speech, and he heads for home. The father watching for him, and catch that, the father's literally looking on the horizon. And how long did the father have to do this? I mean, the father, his eyes consistently watching for the horizon. What does that mean? That the father has hope. The father has faith. And the Bible tells us that we live by the faith of God. It's not just our faith in God. It's the faith of God. You can't have faith even in yourself. We draw it from God himself. And what does the reality of faith in our lives tell us? That God has an endless supply. And that faith that the Father has here is translated into standing on the porch of the house watching the horizon because he knows his son one day will come home. And now the Father watching for him runs alone to meet him. Now there's so much revelation in that by itself. It's mined thoroughly in sermons for years, and I've preached on it a ton. Things like this, that the father would have to hike up his robe to run, which the owner of a kibbutz, what the father's house would be called, would only do that if he was running for his life, running to defend somebody or running to harm somebody. Either way, just the fact that the father's running is an act of passion over dignity. The father initiates with grace before the son can even try to talk his father into letting him come home as a servant. Before he even says he's sorry for anything, the father has restored the authority and the identity of the son in the house. The father now directs the servants to dress him for the party, kill the fattened calf, and start the music and dancing. Now, <clears throat> consider these questions with me today. How easy would life have been for the prodigal after coming home. Who would make it hard for him to return? Not the father. It would be the siblings and the servants who would find it easy to judge him, appropriating on the son the proper amount of guilt and shame for what he had done. Well, the father has no interest in this at all. Restoration of the family is the point, and that reconciliation alone is worth rejoicing over from the father's perspective. The father seems to care nothing about the issues of the lost money or the things that the son did with it. At this point, Jesus now reveals why the second son is even part of the story in the first place. For the parable is not just about the father and the prodigal. The other son's reaction is the greater point, for the conversation between the father and the elder son is the climactic ending of the story. The tension in this short conversation between father and son, between grace and judgment, religion and love, head and heart, flesh and spirit, is enormous. The elder brother, he's never left. He hasn't been foolish. He's sacrificed and served faithfully. He knows it. And he's going to make sure that the father knows it too. Surely that's got to matter. The faithful son pulls the father aside to lecture him about all that he's done, how long he's done it, and how the father hasn't appreciated his service. He believes with all of his heart that his father should be offended and angry at the younger son. And he reminds him of why, recounting what the younger son did. And it makes you wonder how the elder son knew that the younger son was even out there doing all that stuff. Apparently, the elder brother was hearing some gossip, collecting information on the younger son. Never going out to actually try to talk him out of it, the elder brother, you know, he just stays at home, working in the field, probably comparing himself to his brother, feeling proud, arrogant. The elder brother, now that the son's home, doesn't feel like rejoicing over the other son. 
Even he doesn't feel like any of this rejoicing or celebrating the Southern is appropriate at all. He tells the father as much. And he implies that if the father's going to celebrate anybody, it should be the ones who are faithful in the house, like himself. The ones who work hard and do the right thing. These are the ones the elder brother claims should be celebrated. And logically, we know he's right. See, Jesus is crafting this story to create a reaction within the hearer. And maybe you even feel it now. At this point, Jesus gives the father a line in the story that should make every child of God stop in their tracks and repent. The father says to the older son, All that is mine is yours. Now what he reveals here is that the younger son isn't the only one who really didn't care about relationship with the father. I mean, if the elder brother had truly known the father, he would know this. So the faithful son hasn't taken time to be face-to-face with the Father, to where he both knows his heart and what he has access to. Did the elder brother ever sit down with the Father and ask questions? Did he ever stop to think about in the midst of all of this labor, we should throw a party, play some music, dance the night away, and just celebrate the Father and the Father's house? Did he ever join the Father on the porch watching the horizon for his little brother? Or did he just continue working and in his labor build a heart of resentment, not just against the son, but against the father? Did he see the love in the father's eyes as he watched for the younger son and think that maybe the way to earn the father's affection or love is just to work harder? The son could have learned a lot if he would have just gone and stood with the father and loved his little brother along with the father. The upcoming welcome would have been a family reunion. The elder brother should have been with the father, running to welcome his brother home. But he let the father run alone. Are we still letting the father run alone to welcome the prodigals? The elder brother doesn't reflect the father's heart at all. His mindset and his attitude is as independent of the father as the younger son who at least had the passion and courage to strike out, taste freedom, do something new. The younger son wasn't so deluded as to think he was impressing his father at all. He didn't care. He'd given up on that a long time ago. The elder brother is still working to impress his dad, believing that faithful loyalty is all that is necessary to turn the father's heart toward him, not realizing that the father was already fully his. The elder brother is madly upset that what he has worked so hard for is being given away for free to someone who doesn't deserve it. So then, what is the father actually celebrating here? The father is celebrating the slightest hint of an indication that one of his sons has turned their heart toward the father, toward home. It's it's like a resurrection from the dead in the father's eyes. And when we see the father run alone, it tells us a few things. The younger son is accepted into the house, but only by the father. The rest of the family is probably going to make it really hard for him to be there. The father removes guilt and shame, and you know the elder brother is going to pile it back on. And isn't life like this in the church today? For the prodigals, coming back home to the father's house is the solution, but really it's only the beginning of a whole new set of problems. The faithful family members will likely make it really hard for him to be there after the party's over. 
He's going to have a challenge every time he lets somebody down because the ammunition of accusation they have against him is huge. They may represent the pain of the father to him, telling him how hurt dad was by what he did, saying, sure, he was glad when you returned, but we had to live with him while you were gone. And he was just standing out there on the porch, endlessly watching the horizon. He was so disappointed in you. You really caused a lot of pain. It would make the younger son question every act of grace from the father, wondering if perhaps the father was actually inwardly angry. They probably tell him that he needed to make things right by working to restore the inheritance he had squandered, placing before him an impossible task to truly earn his welcome and place in the home. It would make him question whether the father felt this way too. It would make him distrust when the father said he was truly forgiven and restored. Every misrepresentation of the father by the family would weaken trust in the father's love. And eventually, it may feel impossible to be back in the house at all. If he finally gave up and went back out into the world wandering again, it would only give the family cause to say, we knew it, we saw it coming, rather than realizing that they actually enabled it, caused it. The father questioning the family might realize what they'd done and head out to find the son, leading the family to question the sanity and misplaced affection of the father. Now this might all seem completely speculative, I think we can relate to it, and it's exactly what happened in the case of Christ and man. Israel was the starting point to the building of a righteous family that would encompass the whole earth. In Exodus chapter 19, God says to the Israelites, after releasing him from Egypt, I bore you up on eagle's wings to bring you as a kingdom and priest unto myself, for all the earth is mine. The Jews took on the identity as exclusively chosen, but to the exclusion of all others. And this mindset becomes so ingrained within them that even the apostle Peter isn't purged of it until Acts chapter 10. The elder brother syndrome continues in the church today as we misrepresent the heart of the father so routinely until the house and the family is divided thousands of times over. In John 17, 4 and 6, Jesus says, Father, I finished the work you gave me to do by glorifying your name, by representing your name. In John 20, he says, as the Father sent me, I send you. And this is our mandate. To represent the Father's heart is the mission and ministry of reconciliation. This doesn't make people feel inadequate, unworthy, and doesn't use guilt and shame to control people's behavior. If anything, we have the task of convincing them that they're loved and that they're accepted by the Father and that His grace is real encouraging them to go to the Father for anything, approaching Him with confidence in His goodness and in His grace. We don't take the place of the Father. We facilitate relationship with the Father. If we're doing anything, it's because it's what the Father wants. If we're saying anything, it's the same thing the Father is or would say. We're not His enforcers, and He needs no one to defend Him. He'll always be more merciful and loving than we think He should be, for it's His nature. And if he ever disciplines us with love in his mind and correction in his heart, the the biggest challenges for the elder brother not to take up offense for the father when the father isn't even offended. The call to us is to lay down offense and to love when he loves the way he loves, even when it seems irresponsible and unwise. But even more so, the higher call is to prioritize knowing the Father and enjoying all He has 
for us, rather than working to impress him with all of our labor and efforts. Yet the only way we can represent him well is to know him and let the knowledge of his heart soften and change us to be like him. So I want you to hear these words today and hear them spoken over you from the Father as he says to to all of his children, all that is mine is yours. Whether we deserve it or not, or think we deserve it or not, or anybody else thinks we deserve it or not, the reality is, is he gives it to us by his grace. That's why it's a gift, and grace only belongs to those who don't deserve it. Maybe today you're a prodigal, maybe you're an elder brother, but today the call to both is to come home to the Father's heart, to the favor of the Father's face, to know the love of the Father. So, Lord, I pray today for every person that's listening to this broadcast. And, Lord, that today would be a day that they say yes to you, that they say yes to coming home to your heart, that they say, yes, Jesus, I give you my life. I'm tired of living it the way I've been living it. I've been breaking stuff, and I I need to fix some things. So I come home to the favor of your face. Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I lay down my sin. I lay down my false identities, and I believe that I am your child. Thank you, Jesus, for saving and for loving me. Thank you for your grace and for filling me with the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You can write to us at Faith Mountain Ministries, Box 595, Marshall, Minnesota, 56258. Jump online at BillVanderbush.com. Go to the schedule page. Find out where we're going to be. And if we're going to be near you, come out and see us in person. You'll be glad you did. We're so glad for every person that takes the time to listen to this broadcast and to support us and pray for us. If you would like to support this broadcast and you believe in what we're doing, go to BillVanderbush.com and click on the Give link at the bottom of the homepage and it'll take you where you need to go. This is Bill Vanderbush from all of us here at Faith Mountain Ministries. Until next time, may the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.